Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. My name is Darren Bax. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, please make sure you turn off your phones or put it on silent mode. I want to thank all of you for coming here today and also everybody who is watching it online. I also want to give a special thanks to the Pacific Legal Foundation for co-hosting today's event. On January 23rd, 2020, EPA and the Corps finalized a rule called the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. The rule is the agency's latest attempt to define the term waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act. And that, that term is often referred to as simply WOTUS. Navigable Waters Protection Rule is a replacement for the repealed 2015 Obama administration rule called the Clean Water Rule. This WOTUS definition is really critical because it it clarifies what waters can be regulated by the EPA and the Corps. So here's how, here's how the program will be structured today. We're going to divide it into three parts. First, we're going to hear from two experts. One expert is going to provide some background for us on this new final rule, and then we're going to learn what's actually in the final rule. Tony Francois will provide the background. Tony is a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and has litigated cases across the country. He's definitely a true champion of liberty, defending property rights, and challenging government overreach. Deidre Duncan will provide us the details of the final rule. Deidre is a partner in the law firm of Hunnan Andrews Kurth and is a co-leader of their environmental practice. She's one of the top Clean Water Act attorneys in the country and represents a wide range of clients on a wide range of environmental issues, including Clean Water Act, ESA, and NEPA. Both Tony and Deidre have worked extensively on the WOTUS issue specifically, and I sincerely appreciate them joining us today. Secondly, after they provide their presentations, I'm going to join them. We're going to have a discussion. And the goal of having that discussion is to dispel some myths that are out there, add some context to the issues, and provide additional insight and perspective. And then finally, we'll open up the, the floor to your questions. So let's get started um, with Tony. And Tony, can you provide us some background on the WOTUS issue? Thanks to the Heritage Foundation for hosting this event, uh, along with PLF. And uh, also thank Deirdre for joining us today. It's, a, it's an honor to be uh, uh, to share the podium with you. The, uh, as, as Darren mentioned, the, 
one of the very important issues in the administration of the Clean Water Act is uh, its use of the term navigable waters to describe uh, what activities are actually regulated by the Act. Discharges to navigable waters uh, are what the Act regulates. The, uh, the, there is a very uh, able and interesting history of how the agencies have defined that term uh, over the decades since the, the act was first uh, adopted in 1972. Uh, in the preamble to the rule that EPA and the Army Corps just announced, uh, I would commend that to you if you're interested in the details of the history. Um, it, it does run in the hundreds of pages, though. So if, uh, if you're not that interested in the history, <laughs> you probably won't read that, and I won't bore you with it. The, suffice to say, though, the, there's been a lot of controversy uh, over those decades uh, because the agencies have, uh, almost from the very beginning, uh, defined that term very broadly. The second uh, aspect of controversy surrounding it is that both from agency practice um, and uh, ultimately Supreme Court limitation, despite that very broad uh, view of, of what navigable waters means under the Act, there are a lot of things that um, over the last 40 years the Act has not regulated, you know, irrigation ponds and, you know, a, a a wide variety of, uh, of ditches defined different ways at different times, uh, and uh, ultimately as a result of uh, Supreme Court decisions in Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County in 2001, and then Rapanos in 2006, uh, the agencies have been um, under Supreme Court limits in what they could uh, claim authority over. The next major point I want to make in, in the, the lead-up to the Trump administration's new rule is that, that that most recent Supreme Court decision, Rapanos, um, bears a substantial re responsibility for further uh, muddying the waters, if you will. The, the Supreme Court decided for the particular landowner in that case that the agency regulations um, you know, excessively defined what was navigable waters on, on that particular property. But the case does not provide a clear rule supported by a majority of the justices of the Supreme Court to define what the term means. Four justices adopted a fairly narrow reading of the term uh, in an opinion authored by Justice Scalia. And Justice Kennedy separately concurred in the result uh, but offered a, a much more expansive um, view of, of what, the, what the agencies could regulate. Since 2006, the agencies have struggled to implement the decision. The regulated public has struggled with it. Um, and the lower courts, you know, I, I think the short way of saying it is that the lower courts have largely adopted Justice Kennedy's expansive reading of the act. Uh, and yet there's controversy over whether his opinion is actually the controlling opinion in, in the decision. So one thing I'll say that, that, that kind of sits above and outside uh, the discussion of, of the new rule is that I think until the Supreme Court revisits this question and arrives at a majority opinion that uh, provides a reasonable and clear interpretation of the term navigable waters, everybody is going to continue struggling with this. Uh, there's a a great 
short concurrence that Chief Justice Roberts wrote in the Rapanos decision, which is that as the result of today's decision, the Rapanos decision, regulated parties will have to feel their way on a case-by-case basis. So next I want to highlight a couple of the uh, um, cases in which people were feeling their way uh, on the case-by-case basis in the wake of the Rapanos decision to try to sort out whether or not the Clean Water Act applied to their property. I won't go into the details of, of their cases, um, but just to um, give you an idea of the, the types of you know, ambiguities that, that the Act suffered from post upon us. Uh, so that photo is an aerial photograph uh, that shows, and I'll highlight it here, um, except it doesn't show up on the TV, dang. All righty. Um, so uh, there's a couple that owns one of the vacant properties in that photo. Um, there's a kind of a major road that runs, you know, side to side through the photo. Um, and then uh, a vacant area and then a series of houses that are right next to the lake. The lot in question uh, shown in this photo, it's bounded on both ends by you know, roads that have been there for decades. Uh, it has, um, based on the EPA's own investigation of the site, no surface connection, no surface water connection to any other water body. Uh, and yet in 2007, EPA claimed jurisdiction over it because it's the tail end of a historic peat bog, which is uh, mainly situated uh, north of that road. So that's a case that's been going on. Uh, it's still actually going on uh, 13 years, almost 13 years later. Okay, so this is one example. Next example, uh, raise your hand if you see the wetland in the photograph. Okay, so that greener area in the middle of the photo is actually a, a vernal pool uh, and um, routinely classified as jurisdictional by uh, EPA and the Army Corps. This happens to be in California. Uh, but that's an example of a wetland that does not directly abut, uh, but occasionally does drain through a, a network of swales to a seasonal creek. This particular wetland, well, uh, the, this property, there's a number of these types of wetlands on it, was the subject of a uh, multi-million, well, a more than million dollar settlement of an EPA, uh, Army Corps enforcement action against the landowner uh, for plowing it. Um, this picture is of a, uh, a rivulet that uh, is about 40 miles from the nearest actually navigable river. Um, it is, by the government's description, about a foot wide and about a foot deep. Uh, and they characterize the flow shown in the picture as about three garden hoses worth. Um, this is the map. I won't try to show you the connections, but... This is the map that shows both that site and the, um, and the um, related navigable river downstream, again, 40 miles distant. Uh, these were both exhibits in the government's prosecution of uh, uh, a gentleman for digging a fire protection pond in the course of that uh, rivulet. He spent 18 months in federal custody for, uh, for not realizing that that was federally regulated navigable waters. Uh, under the then in effect um, rules. And then this final photo shows, uh, this is similar, uh, this is an aerial photograph. Uh, it's nearby the property where I showed you the ground photo of the vernal pool. 
the blue on that photograph was uh, mapped and delineated by a wetland consultant in 1994 uh, in support of a potential uh, golf course and retirement housing development. And I mean, that map is probably why that, that project never went forward. Um, but that's farmland. And so, uh, you know, the, the stuff that's mapped in blue there, when you look at it on the ground, mostly looks like that. And so it's very difficult for landowners to know, you know, which, which of these uh, are going to be considered by the government, you know, as blue on a map like that and therefore subject to regulation. So th these kinds of controversies uh, and difficulties led uh, the Obama administration to adopt a rule in 2015 that attempted uh, to clarify what was covered and what wasn't. Um, that rule took a very expansive view of Justice Kennedy's expansive view of, of the meaning of the term. Uh, it ignited an enormous amount of controversy and uh, significant litigation. Four separate district courts and one circuit court uh, ruled in various ways against the uh, the 2015 uh, regulations defining the term. And um, two of those courts actually remanded the rule to EPA and the Army Corps uh, for further work. This leads then to the Trump administration's announcement uh, in, at the end of February in 2017. So uh, almost within a month of taking office, uh, almost exactly three years ago today. And that um, announcement was an executive order directing the agencies to reconsider the 2015 regulation uh, and to consider uh, in looking at that question whether or not to replace it with a rule that was based more on the Scalia plurality from Rapanos, uh, which has a much narrower view of the act, and um, laid out some policy bases for, for making this direction. One was uh, economic concern, uh, the impact that um, you know, expansive regulation uh, under the Clean Water Act has on development and economic activity. Um, another was, um, you know, comity uh, or federalism with the states. The Clean Water Act does uh, have as one of its uh, co-purposes um, proper uh, sharing of authority with the states over waters that the states should regulate. The process that the EPA used uh, was a very complex, uh, had a lot of moving parts, but it culminated... Uh, a little, over, a little over a week ago with the announcement of a new rule. It's not been published in the Federal Register yet, but uh, it is available on the EPA's website. And so now we're looking, instead of what's gone on in the past, at what the administration has done with the new rule. And with that, I'll turn it over to Deirdre. Thank you very much. Um, let me see if this gets to my slides. Uh-oh. They'll, they'll put it up. I don't know. I can just talk. Oh. You talk on Wait, it's up there. There you go. Okay, let me go back. Okay. I think we've covered all of this. It was published, pre-publication version, about a week ago, 340 pages of fun. Um, I've been waiting for it to be published in the Federal Register because I prefer to read a shorter <laughs> set of uh, pages, but it, it hasn't. 
But when it finally is published in the Federal Register, it will um, become effective 60 days from that date. Um, importantly, just as a practitioner, I'm always interested in kind of what happens with JDs that were done under prior rules or guidance, and do you have to go get another JD? Um, they said that you can rely on the JDs that you have uh, unless you request a new one. Um, so essentially, there's some certainty that if you have a JD and you like your JD, you can keep it, um, or you can ask to avail yourself of the new rule. So just hitting the high points, um, these are very familiar categories. Not a, not a lot really looks different. They've consolidated um, the, the categories into four major categories of jurisdictional waters. Here they are, the territorial seas and traditional navigable waters, the tributaries, a new kind of combined category called lakes, ponds, and impoundments of jurisdictional waters, and adjacent wetlands. So this looks relatively simple, but each of these um, categories has definitions and further definitions within those definitions that really uh, get to the meat of, of what's going to be regulated. Um, the first category, and I'm just hitting the high points here. We're hopefully going to delve in deeper in discussion, but just to kind of make sure everybody has the lay of the land, I'm going to hit the high points. Um, territorial seas a relatively non-controversial um, category. People generally know what those are. Um, but then what the rule does is retain the previous regulations um, category of A1 waters as is. Um, those waters are waters which are currently used or were used in the past or may be susceptible to use in interstate or foreign commerce. This category also includes those waters that are subject to the ebb and flow of the tide, the tidal waters. And as I said, this is essentially, it is the same definition of the A1 waters uh, as has been in the regulations for a long time. Um, the agencies have chosen to eliminate a category called the interstate waters, um, which generally people supported eliminating that and including it kind of within this this category. Um, we'll talk more about this. In my opinion, this is one of the uh, more disappointing aspects to, to the rule, um, but we'll talk more later. The next category are tributaries. Um, and, you know, tributaries has been in the rule for a long time. The 2015 rule had a category called tributaries. Um, this rule has a category called tributaries, but what this rule does is regulate perennial and intermittent rivers and streams that contribute surface flow to traditional navigable waters in a typical year. Um, perennial is defined as surface water flowing continuously year-round, and intermittent waters are defined as surface water flowing continuously during certain times of the year and more than in direct response to precipitation. Um, ephemeral waters are not included in this definition, uh, and I'll explain how they're defined later uh, in the next slide. 
the concept of typical year is a is a very important concept under this rule. It it tells you whether uh, a water body is going to be perennial or intermittent. It's also used in the lakes and ponds category. So it too has a definition, and there's actually a fact sheet and other materials that the agency has have put out about how you determine a typical year. Um, and it's it's fairly scientific. Uh, in, in nature, you're looking at a lot of scientific documents to determine essentially that an area is wet, is, you know, acting in, surf having surface water flowing um, during, and it's a normal, normal time of year, and that that happens, on, it's a normal time of year. You're not looking at, it, at the feature when it's uh, a drought, you're not looking at it when it's in a flood, but it's essentially acting as it acts normally. That's the basic gist of what a typical year is trying to get at. Um, as I said, the tributary definition excludes the concept of ephemeral features, and it defines them as surface water flowing or pooling only in direct response to precipitation, rain or snowfall. So whereas intermittent features were flowing more than in direct response to precipitation, ephemeral features are only flowing in direct response. So this whole issue of the distinction between what is an ephemeral feature that is only flowing in direct response versus an intermittent that flows more than indirect response, this is a very gray area and is, is going to actually play out, I think, more in implementation. Um, the tributary uh, definition also includes the notion of certain kinds of ditches ditches that meet this tributary definition and are relocated or constructed in a tributary or adjacent wetland will be in. Um, and these are two, you have to have both those requirements. So a ditch that's perennially flowing, it flows all the time, it has water in it all the time and contributes flow to a downstream water. Just that fact alone doesn't make the ditch jurisdictional. The ditch has to also have relocated or be constructed in a tributary or adjacent wetland. Moving on, um, as I said, there's they've created this new category. There was a category. I mean, lakes have been regulated, ponds have been regulated, impoundments was a category, but now there is a new kind of combined category called lakes and ponds and impoundments of jurisdictional waters. Um, these water bodies have to contribute surface flow to a TNW, again, in a typical year. Um, they have to connect either through channelized uh, conveyances, pipes, et cetera, to uh, 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 an adjacent um, TNW, or, and I don't have this on here, be inundated by another jurisdictional water body. So there's this notion of, of one of these lakes or ponds or impoundments actually being flooded or inundated by um, a, a, an otherwise regulated water body. Final category are adjacent wetlands. Um, the agencies do a lot to try and give more guidance on what makes an adjacent wetland. A wetland that abuts a jurisdictional water actually physically touches a water, uh, jurisdictional water is regulated. A wetland that is inundated or flooded by a jurisdictional water is an adjacent wetland. And then it deals with the um, berms and artificial kind of barriers. Um, so a, water so a, a wetland 
that is separated from a jurisdictional water body by a natural berm or bank or sand dune will be in, regardless of whether there's uh, a connection. Um, but if you're separated, if you're an adjacent wetland and you're separated uh, from a jurisdictional water body and you're an artificial feature like a dike or flood control um, levee, you have to have that direct hydrological surface connection in a typical year. So there's a difference in treatment between natural dunes or natural features and artificial features when it comes to something being an adjacent wetland. Um, the rule is good in the sense that it clarifies that in order to be a wetland, you have to satisfy all three wetland factors. You have to have the hydrology, vegetation, and so hydric soils. And then finally, there uh, are continued to be uh, helpful exclusions from the definition of WOTUS. And I just highlighted two, um, the prior converted cropland and waste treatment exclusion, which were exclusions in previous regulations, but were very, that, that had their own confusing histories associated with them. And the agencies have done a fairly good job. I think this is one of the bright spots of the, the rule is in really giving uh, good clarity on these exemptions. It's not to say there, there aren't still questions or they are, aren't perfect, but I think they've done a good job making these two exemptions in particular a lot more useful and, and obviously for the agricultural community and, and really industrial manufacturing, any, any really entity that does business and has to manage their waste, the waste treatment system is going to be much, much more useful. And that's, that's the overview. Thank you, Tony and Deidre. Um, so in the executive order in 2017 that Trump um, issued, it talked about the EPA and Corps coming up with a final rule and, and at least considering making it consistent with Rapanos, the Scalia opinion in Rapanos. So my question is, is this final rule consistent with the Scalia plurality opinion in Rapanos, and if it's not, how is it not consistent? I'll just open up to either one of you or both. You want to start? <laughs> it's actually a hard question to answer. The, uh, the approach that the agencies took is to try to um, uh, distill um, what they describe as common principles from both the plurality and the concurrence and to use those common principles to, um, to build the rule. There's, I mean, it's, it's not an unreasonable thing to do. Um, I think there's probably going to be a legal debate whether you can actually do that with a fractured Supreme Court opinion. Um, the way the Supreme Court has said you deal with fractured opinions that they issue, the analysis is complex, but the outputs are one opinion or the other. And, you know, the commonalities can help you decide one or the other. But I, I think that there's going to be a legal dispute whether or not the methodology of simply trying to blend the two rules, um, you know, is, is available to them. They concede in the preamble that if you simply look at each of the two opinions, the rule isn't strictly, you know, within the boundaries of either. 
Um, but you know, again, their their approach to it is to try to find what's common between them and to uh, to base the rule on that. I I agree with what you what you said. I I do think though this rule is largely a plurality driven rule, um, at least on tributaries. Um, I think the agencies um, are focusing on continuous flowing waters. Um, they're, they're looking at uh, trying to exclude waters that don't flow frequently and predictably. And there's a gray area there, um, and I know people would like very, a very clear line that says these waters are out, um, but it's, it's hard. I think there are going to be a lot of ephemeral waters that people can clearly say are out. Um, there are going to be some intermittent waters that look like ephemeral waters, and, and you're going to get into that whole discussion of, of does it flow continuously at certain times of the year in a typical year, and is that more than indirect response to rainfall? That's what people are going to have to deal with on the ground. Um, I think what the agencies were essentially trying to do is a drop, adopt what was in the Rapanos guidance on relatively permanent waters, which was waters that flow seasonally, kind of predictably, during a certain season are in. And, and they've really eliminated from uh, their jurisdictional test this case-specific significant nexus approach, which is what the 2015 rule did. Uh, it's what the Rapanos guidance had in it. And, and that was extremely problematic. That was, you know, kind of applying the strict tests of both Scalia and Kennedy. And right, and as, as Tony explained, they've kind of merged these into their own kind of new, <laughs> new manner of establishing jurisdiction. But to me, it's more closely aligned with uh, the relatively permanent waters concept that Scalia was trying to get at, um, certainly than a significant nexus approach, where you're aggregating you know, waters all over the landscape to say that something small has significance. Yeah, I, I, I would add, too, that um, the, the degree to which the, the new rule changes the agency's view of adjacent wetlands is um, dramatic and almost entirely the, the plurality view of it. The if you if you think back to the um, you know that, that blue overlay you know photo I showed you, so most of the wetlands on on that particular property um, are you know at some distance from anything that you know flows like a tributary, uh, even even under the new rule, uh, well under any definition of the of the term, and yeah the agencies were quite um, quite. Uh, readily able to establish that excellent. So, uh, all those little blue dots that are you know kind of away from the streams that you see depicted in there, uh, the agencies would have no trouble establishing those as adjacent uh, under the old rules. The the, the definition of adjacent was um, bordering, contiguous, or neighboring. And you know, so from one perspective, neighboring is where a lot of the mischief came in, and you know. What's neighboring? Well, it's pretty far away. It can be neighboring. Under the new rule, um, again, you, you would have to have a 
you know, an engineer look at that on the ground and, and in that photo. But I would say most of the wetlands in that photo that have, you know, aren't connected by a blue line to anything else are probably excluded by the new rule. Um, and that's going to, I think, have a dramatic effect on the regulated public um, and uh, is a very significant change in the, in the agency's uh, view of, of the scope of their authority. And, and again, I mean, there's some, some question about whether the plurality would agree that something that actually is physically separated by a natural barrier uh, would be included. But, but nonetheless, so there's a couple other things that uh, the preamble makes clear which is that you can't daisy chain adjacent wetlands. So in that photo, you know, you might find one that's like right next to a tributary and then another one right next to that one and on and on to get out to the middle of those fields. And the preamble makes clear that at least the, the way this administration views that, um, you only get like the first adjacent wetland and beyond that is non-jurisdictional. So I think that's also pretty strongly reflects the plurality view. So arguably the <clears throat> most important water to define is the traditional navigable water or A1 water that was mentioned because really everything kind of starts from that. Once you define the traditional navigable water, everything, the tributaries, adjacent wetlands, and are connected back to that definition of traditional navigable waters. The problem is if you have too broad of a definition, which I think the proposed rule had and now the final rule has, you might wind up <clears throat> with a situation that um, some people might stretch the Commerce Clause to somehow decide that something actually does impact interstate <laughs> commerce. So I, I guess to ask both of you, what are your, do you have concerns about the definition? And Deirdre, you mentioned that you did. And what are those concerns? Yeah, I was disappointed that, um, but not surprised, because the proposal didn't propose direct changes to that part of the rule in the rule language. And so I think you can tell that the agencies in their final rule were trying to stay very close to what they had proposed so as not to make the rule potentially vulnerable from a logical outgrowth perspective, which the last rule suffered from. So, um, you know, I, I'm not surprised that they left it alone. Um, the problem is the the, the A1 uses this language, use in interstate or foreign commerce. And use, and you know, and it's not just use in, it's past use, potential future use. Um, and and that's, that can be, and I've had clients who that language has been used to essentially, you know, say you're using the water for an industrial economic purpose. It's an A1 water. And, and, it, and it could if pushed to a, a very, you know, kind of extreme position, could eat up the entire rule. That's, I know not what this administration intended, and when you read the preamble, they're trying to put limits on it, but they didn't change it. They didn't make it clear that it had to be transporting commercial navigation, commerce, which is what the term navigable really implies. They didn't add that in there. They didn't address or didn't make this, the point that the A1 waters are uh, coterminous with the Rivers and Harbors Act waters, which was another suggestion that was made. Um, they left it as is and, and also, disappointingly, did not withdraw the Appendix D um, to 
the core instruction manual that went along with the Rapanos guidance. So they left in place this Appendix D, which is this two or three page document that essentially gives a very, very broad meaning to the A1 traditional navigable waters that, that uses concepts like recreational use. Um, and again, the preamble tries to cut back on, they, you know, they question that there were, or they, they state that there were problems with Appendix D, but they don't withdraw it. So, um, you know, we don't like Appendix D, it shouldn't mean what it's saying, but we're leaving it in place. So that, again, is, is problematic. I think just in maybe fairness to the administration, they can get rid of Appendix D at any time. Um, they can issue a new guidance document, and maybe they will. Um, but at the end of the day, the rule language is still the rule language. It says use in interstate or foreign commerce, and right now Appendix D is in place. So until they actually issue guidance that maybe gives a little bit more um, limits on what the rule language says, we're, we're stuck with a very broad notion of, of the traditional navigable waters. And even if this administration issues guidance that is better than Appendix D, what's to say that a new administration won't just go back and um, change that guidance, get rid of it, and potentially make it even broader? So those are all my concerns <laughs> with traditional navigable waters as, you know, under this rule. I don't have a whole lot to add to that. Um, I mean, there's a couple of curious examples that the that the Army Corps has used, um, you know, in the in the past. Um, I'm aware of one case. It might, it might be with with one of your colleagues of the one of the agencies claiming authority over a fairly modest sized pond at a rest stop, um, a mile from a interstate freeway exit that had no connection to anything else in the world. It might have been like a little fishing pond or something like that. But the the rationale for claiming authority over it was that um, interstates are all about interstate travel and commerce, and so people getting off the interstate freeway would stop here and eat their lunch and, uh, you know, kind of enjoy the scenery. And therefore, as an A1 water, that was waters used in interstate commerce uh, and therefore subject to core regulation. Um, in the Swank decision in 2001, the Supreme Court struck down what's called the Migratory Bird Rule, uh, which meant that, and, and this, this again is a, a, an exercise of the agency's authority under this category, that if birds fly across state lines and use a particular water body for habitat, that alone establishes agency authority over it. Swank struck that down as an unreasonable reading of the act. The same... Um, in the same bullet list that the migratory bird rule appears, there's another factor, which is uh, any water used to irrigate crops that are sold in interstate commerce uh, is subject to regulation. So, I, you know, the, the agencies have this history of, you know, being fairly aggressive uh, with that part of their authority. The preamble, I think, tries to tamp that down, but I agree that as as guidance that's subject to agency, subject to administrations, you know, taking it or, or giving it. Uh, and that there's a pretty clear history of the agency staff, you know, taking an expansive approach to use of this authority. Let's go through a few, a few more questions real quickly. Um, so we discussed the problem of intermittent waters. Uh, 
there was kind of a desire to provide more clarity as to what intermittent means. There's, it may not be too clear what the difference is between intermittent waters and ephemeral waters. Um, just some thoughts on that whole intermittent issue, Tony? Well, the, so the preamble goes into a lot of detail, uh, both on what the agencies mean by the difference between ephemeral and intermittent, and gives examples of streams that may look like they're flowing intermittently, but they're actually flowing in response to multiple rain events that are close in time to each other. Um, I, I do think there's going to be kind of a boundary problem, um, you know, on the, I, I want to say on the margins, but I'm not sure, you know, how marginal that is. I mean, the, you know, again, that the, you know, blue delineation map I showed you, a lot of the, a lot of what's mapped in there is, is drainages or tributaries. You know, it's not clear that they do flow more than in direct response to precipitation. Um, and it, so it's, it, when you dig into the, the way that those determinations can be made in the preamble, I mean, there's two things that stand out. One is there's a wide variety of methodologies that agency staff can use to make that decision. And, you know, I think it's fair to expect that the staff will use a methodology that favors their ability to, to regulate. Secondly, um, even with all that, it, it admits that there's going to be some uncertainty about the boundaries of this. So in, in a way, maybe the, you know, the proof of, of this is going to be in the field. Are there significant tributary systems that would qualify under the old way of looking at it? That, that wouldn't under this. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is, frankly. Part of it is that the way that it decides whether something's a tributary is at a technical level so different than, than the old methodology that it, we'll need to see how they do it to, to know some of that. Arguably, one of the biggest, uh, the agency's kind of disregard of Rapanos Scalia's opinion or Panos is the fact that he would not have covered intermittent waters, except he would have covered arguably some seasonal waters. Um, and that's addressed in footnote five of the Panos opinion. So, I mean, what Scalia was trying to do is kind of have a very clear, bright line rule to basically exclude, for the most part, most waters that were, at, at least at a minimum, they had to be at least seasonal waters, at least 90 days of continuous flow, and they, they, I would have argued for a longer period of time because Scalia also argues that there needs to be ordinary presence of water. Um, this definition doesn't include the ordinary presence of water, in my opinion, and nor does it at least require 90 days of continuous flow. Thoughts on, like, how that might have been, were they just simply concerned about the logical outgrowth issues? Well, I, I kind of disagree. Um, I don't think, I think Scalia talked about relatively permanent waters. He talked about seasonal waters. But exactly what he meant, he, he wasn't using the terminology that the agencies have set forth here, perennial, intermittent, ephemeral. They've, they've established their own definitions of those terms. And I, one point I just wanted to make was um, they're not the common, and they make this point as well, they're not the common scientific uh, definitions of those terms. They're their own definitions. Um, and so whereas intermittent waters 
under kind of the scientific definition like consultants used is that there's some relationship to groundwater, that, that the groundwater essentially creates a base flow to the stream for portions of the year. Whereas ephemeral waters really just have their flow in, re in response to rainfall events and ha there is no groundwater um, source of flow. That's not what they chose to do in this rule, and and that's in some ways part of the problem because, you know, it's like new definitions, and and so I don't really see them necessarily being inconsistent with Scalia. I think again they're trying to faithfully understand what what was he concerned with, what and and it was the notion that there be water in a water body, it be a water body, and it flow with water predictably seasonally, and that I do think is what these definitions are, are trying to get at. Um, so in that way, I, I guess I disagree. I think it is consistent with Scalia, um, just set forth in a, in a different way. Okay, before we get to the questions, just there's a couple of criticisms of the final rule, um, a lot of criticisms actually, but let me just throw a couple out there. One that this final rule is going to mean that a bunch of waters are no longer going to be protected. And the, the other argument and is that this final rule ignores the science. So I want to see what you guys thought. Well, on the first, on the first point, there's a lot of uh, water, you know, water features out there that, you know, particularly in the area of adjacent wetlands, uh, that this rule says the agencies will no longer regulate. And I think that that has to be acknowledged you know, for what it is and that um, it, from whatever perspective you're looking at it, whether it's from, you know, how does this help the regulated public uh, or, you know, how big a change is it uh, or, um, you know, how just how significant a move is this? It's, it's, it's significant. That doesn't mean that they're not regulated, though. Uh, for a lot of these uh, water features, it just means they're not regulated twice, once by the state and once by the federal government. Um, in most of the cases I've been involved with, there's a parallel state regulation program uh, for, for streams and, and wetlands. Uh, California, <laughs> when Swank was decided and in the early 2000s, people were trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do, you know, with what Swank doesn't cover. Builders in California were telling me, oh, we'd prefer to have the core. We don't want the state of California regulating us. Um, the, um, uh, so, you know, there may be some states that, that have less robust protections for, for some of these water features than the federal government did. It's the EPA and the Army Corps' position in this rule that that's for those states to decide. Uh, and, you know, there's democratic processes in those states. And, you know, I, I think it's also important to assess the, uh, you know, what's the significance. So, again, if you think back to that, uh, you know, blue overlay on the map, that's three miles from the city of Red Bluff. It's eight miles from the Sacramento River. Um, you know, nobody hunts there. Nobody fishes there. It's a, it's a farm and ranch field. Um, how significant an issue is it really? You know, if only the state of California tells people what to do there. Um, so I, 
I mean, it's factually correct that this changes the status of a lot of regulated waters, uh, but I think it's overblown to say that all of a sudden, you know, you'll be free to, you know, construct a sewage plant, you know, anywhere you want. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot's going to depend upon the implementation of some of these points that we talked about, this kind of gray area between intermittent and ephemeral. Um, but I, but I, I agree. I mean, if you start from the premise that the 2015 rule could have regulated any water anywhere, then yes, this probably doesn't regulate as many waters as that. And I think it's the right place to be to say that not all water everywhere has to be regulated by the federal government. And so what this rule has tried to do is establish a framework for essentially looking at what waters are truly important, um, what waters are less important and less important from the federal perspective and could and should be regulated by the states as a matter of land use. That's the framework this is trying to establish. And um, again, I don't think that means those, those non-federally regulated areas um, aren't, aren't necessarily protected. I think the same concept really applies to the science question. Um, the connectivity report, um, you know, which and the SAB review of that report, which I participated in for many years, simply said all waters are connected. Um, you know, it didn't say, you know, that all waters are, have a significant nexus. They, it didn't say that all waters have to be federally regulated. It didn't establish a line. They recognized that um, science can't create a legal line. Um, and what and so, and they recognize that waters are connected on a continuum with perennial and intermittent waters being, you know, more connected and more um, important to downstream navigable waters and then ephemeral streams and ephemeral waters on the other end being less. And, you know, it, it really said that uh, it's ultimately a legal question. And so I think this rule is very much informed by that science. I think they did a really good job in the preamble articulating that. I think this concept of typical year, which requires the review of precipitation data and climate data, really infuses a good amount of science into, that, into those gray areas. So I completely disagree that this rule disregards the science. Um, let's take some questions from the audience. Hey, and, and by by the before, I'll, thanks for yeah. Say your name and your affiliation. And R.J. Smith, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, question for uh, Deirdre: On your comments on tributaries, you said it excludes uh, ephemeral features such as surface water pooling from rainfall. Now, is that going to exclude the millions of vernal pools all across the Central Valley of California? I mean, if it doesn't rain, those things are going to be empty. They're not going to have any water in them. I, we know yet. Well, I mean, under the prior rule, those waters would have been regulated under these case-specific significant nexus determinations where they would aggregate all of those waters up. That approach is gone, and so, you know, I'm not a... Uh, core regulator, um, but I would say there's a good case that those, you know, those areas, if they are in fact isolated and not near any other 
jurisdictional, not separated by a, a sand dune or a natural berm from something that's a TNW or another jurisdictional water, they should be out. Um, but again, that's the kind of proof that's going to be in the you know implementation. Um, so. Well, but, <laughs> right. Because so one of the one of the issues that's been raised about this is that um, in in those vernal pool complexes, uh, a Clean Water Act permit may be the only federal permit one needs that would raise consultation under the ESA. Um, and I mean, there there may be cases for ESA reasons where somebody would rather have the incidental take pr protection that comes with the Clean Water Act. Um, but um, that's that raises a different issue, which is that um, those species are listed as threatened rather than endangered, and the service is illegally extending the take prohibition to them. Um, but that's for another panel. <laughs> Adam, over here. Oh, no. Oh, okay, yeah. Diane Katz, Heritage. Um, we've talked primarily about the bodies of water that would fall under regulation here, but not the actions and is there any change to um, land use definitions that can or you know what can and cannot be done on the waters and then just very quickly also what strikes me about this in particular is that the courts and um, the executive branch have been going over back and forth about this for decades and Congress is basically absent and uh, is there any chance hope really that we'll get something definitive from the body that's supposed to do all this the last one is no <laughs> unless anyone disagrees they can oh you okay good but I, I I'm glad you asked the question I think you're asking about um, some of the activity exemptions and I I actually just noticed this in reading I mean it's 340 pages there's a lot in there really the preamble has so much more and that I'm still absorbing and will be absorbing for a long time. We all will. But um, there is a very interesting discussion on um, actions with respect to the 404F exemptions for ditch maintenance for those who care about ditches. Um, I think there's some very helpful language that tries to give better meaning, more helpful meaning to um, ditch maintenance, allowing, you know, under the 404F exemptions, it talks about essentially exempting um, construction and maintenance of certain ditches. And I think that they're trying in that um, discussion to essentially encourage the routine maintenance of ditches, which has in the past been problematic, triggered permitting requirements. And I think they're saying, you should rely on the exemption and not necessarily have to obtain a permit. How that plays out, you know, you know, in practice, that, I don't know. But that was actually a very interesting and helpful discussion because I had been thinking to myself, there are a lot of ditches that, under the definition, they flow water perennially, they hold water. Um, and they recognize a lot of, like, uh, stormwater management systems were constructed in wetlands or can relocate streams, and those still are tributaries under this rule, but 
they recognize this concept of ditch maintenance, which is pretty important. So I think I think that was another pro <laughs> to this rule. The, uh, I think Congress would take action on this if the Supreme Court revisits Rapanos and a five-vote majority settles on something like the Rapanos plurality, which would mean that this rule is about the outer limits of what the agencies could do. And I think that would change the, the status quo enough that you might see congressional action. Um, but short of that, they've, they've got no need to or reason to. Uh, Joe Gilson with Senator Grassley. And uh, going back to your previous answer, do we have a timeline of both implementation and then when the Supreme Court is likely to take it up? <laughs> well, so the second question first, there's um, there will certainly be litigation over this rule. Um, the litigation over the 2015 rule um, went through a lot of um, went, went down a long and winding road. It got revived, you know, about two years ago. And at this point is still mainly in the district court stage. So um, I would say Supreme Court review of anything under this rule is probably two to three years out uh, unless, you know, something more uh, rapid happens. There are also cases that are pending that may raise this issue uh, but aren't ready for cert petitions yet. The Robertson case um, would have uh, if Mr. Robertson had not unfortunately passed away before the uh, Supreme Court um, heard his cert petition. Uh, the Sackett case is pending in the Ninth Circuit and raises this issue. Um, there's a case out of, um, I think, the Western District of West Virginia uh, that's not quite final in the trial court that raises the issue. So there's, there's a variety of ways they could. Implementation, I don't know, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, it's hard to say how long the agencies will need to rev and they're going to need to very thoroughly revise their agency staff manuals because it's not just the footprint that changes, it's the methodology for determining what belongs in the footprint is quite different in this. And one more question. Well, thank you very much. Uh, join me, thanking the, the panel.